last week, which is just a little ways past the halfway mark, and I'm jumping all the way to the end. So this, this is the final passage of the book of Acts. So if you're new, welcome. If you've been here for this study, if you've been here through the whole thing, thank you for hanging in there for the whole, the whole deal. I told the 830 service that every once in a while I have to track down something or find a quote, and I'll go back and listen to some old recording on our podcast, and I just think, ugh, oh man, these are patient people. So thank you, you know, the accent and the lip smacking and the ums, and you're just, you're very patient. So thank you for going the distance. But we're going to be in the, the, the last part of literally the, the end of the book, Acts 28. We're going to pick up in the second part of verse 14. It's in the bulletin there if you want to follow in the bulletin. Uh, I, I learned recently something I had never heard before, and that is that if I were living in the United States in 1900, I would have lived to a ripe old age. I'm 49. And I didn't know this. In 1900, in our country, the average lifespan, I believe, for males was maybe 48. For females, 46. I might have those backwards. But at 49, I'd be, I'd be a ripe old age. I don't feel that way, but that's, that's what the numbers would have said. And a lot of history has been like that. And sometimes it's been even lower. 50 sounds so young to us. And it was, in, in a large chunks of history, it was to be fairly old. And I wanted to, I just wanted that in your mind coming to this passage because for the, for the last half of Acts, the dominant figure is Paul, the Apostle Paul. And there's, there's quite a few other people at the beginning, but really built around him the last half of Acts. And this passage is very much about Paul. And so you may lose a sense of the passage of time and of the passage of the years, but by the time we get to this, what we're going to read is Paul coming finally to Rome. And you know, one of the most famous things that he ever wrote is what we call the book of Romans, or he would have said the epistle, the letter to the Romans. He wrote that about three years before that, before this. He, we think he wrote Romans about 57 A.D. He arrives in Rome about 60 A.D. And that would be 25 plus years into him being a Christian and being an apostle. So he's probably mid-50s or so. So don't picture a young man. Picture, by his standards, an older man, probably a big beard because he lived out, uh, outside sometimes or on the go sometimes. But also picture this, that if you saw his hands or his arms, but especially if you saw his back, if you, if you saw his bare back, I think we would have gasped. Even if you've been around the Bible, I think you'd gasp because we've, if you've read the New Testament, you might have seen this, but... Multiple times he was flogged. Multiple times he was beat with rods. He was once uh, stoned, as in hit with stones to kill him and was left for dead. They thought they had polished him off and he lived. But just marks all over his body. In fact, in one of his letters he said, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So I want you to picture this man that's finally coming to Rome. He wrote him a letter, but this is his first time to meet the people to whom he wrote Romans. Uh, about three years after he wrote it, and he's going to see these Christians, but then he's going to dialogue with the Jews of Rome. So picture an older man, seasoned, uh, not many more years left, marks all over his body. And I want, I want, I want you to think about this, and then I'm going to read it. Uh, Luke is a very intentional writer, and I just saw commentary after commentary of people who are really... New Testament scholars say it's just there are all these marks that 
Luke is so careful in how he writes. He's careful in how he structures things. This is the account of the gospel going all over the world, going from this local Jerusalem area to all over the globe, and it seems to end weird. I don't know how else to say it. It, it, it. it seems to have a weird ending. It ends with the main character under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard. Now, why, why would Luke do that? Well, let's look at it. Acts 28, and we're going to start in the second part of verse 14. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. In disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all your scriptures, and thank you for Acts. Thank you for giving us, <clears throat> giving the world your servant Luke, not only to write one of the Gospels with all its detail and all its richness, but to give us this account, this eyewitness account of the gospel going where it had never gone before. And we pray that in this final study that you would one more time open our ears, encourage us, lift us up, show us your power. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, this weekend, I, I got around to reading an article that somebody had recommended to me, and I had I'd actually printed it out. I'm kind of an analog guy, and I had set it aside. So I picked it back up this weekend and happened to read it. And it was an article from the New York Times from this past fall, and the name of the article is Generation Adderall. And the writer is really uh, remarkably, she's a good writer, but she's very vulnerable, and she's very open and honest about her experience with this particular drug. Uh, You may have heard of Adderall. Some of you may have taken Adderall or or be on it. Strictly speaking, it's it's supposed to be something that's prescribed for ADHD. But it's, it's widely recognized that there's just a much, 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 much larger population in the United States taking this than those who have actually been diagnosed with that particular condition. And here's how she became one. She was an undergrad at, uh, at Brown in, in Rhode Island. And she was a sophomore, and she was just really behind on an assignment. She was supposed to give a five-page book review of a book that she was just starting the day before. Not that any of us ever did that kind of thing, but that was her, you know, that was her situation. And she mentioned it to a, a friend of hers, and uh, her friend said, well, just take a couple of Adderall. And she reached in her pocket and opened up a little tinfoil and gave her these two blue pills. And she said, when I take it, I, it keeps me up all night and I feel like doing somersaults. And so the, the writer thought, perfect. Had never taken it before. So she took them and, and her description is that the world like fell away from her. And she got in the quiet part of the Brown Library and it was like every word came into focus and every idea came into focus, and her own writing and creativity, she said, just piled up into this beautiful paper and like had no sense of the passage of time, looks out the window, the sky's getting pink, finishes her paper, crushed it, and went, wow. So then after a while, she did it again. And then after a while, she did it again. And then she really began to just kind of like think of good life in terms of when I get my next Adderall. She didn't have a prescription. She started to research, what do you say to a doctor to be prescribed for Adderall? Went to a doctor and said those things. And they were not true. Like she, she loved school, but she said to a doctor, I, you know, I just feel under so much pressure in my classes and I hate school. And it's just such a pressure cooker. And she said, it wasn't true. I love school. But I knew that's what I had to say. Read the prescription. And she said it like it was, she describes it like somebody was handing her good news. That now I don't have to scrounge and look through a friend's medicine cabinet. I have my own, I have my own access. And you can imagine where the article goes, that it just completely got away from her and became full-on addiction. And, and She'll even say things like, it, it reached the point where, because she was training to be a writer, and, and she is a writer now, that's why I'm reading her article, that I didn't know if there was a me anymore without Adderall that could be a writer. Like, I didn't know if there was a non-Adderall me to do things and enjoy things. Now, just from a biblical vantage point, if we were going to say, and again, I... I, I Please don't, if you're on it, don't hear anything I'm saying as critique of you or flippancy, but I'm describing her experience. With her vulnerable account of what happened in her life, from a biblical vantage point, if you're going to fill in this blank, how would you fill it? Adderall became her blank. And there's different ways you could, you could fill in that blank. I mean, one, one that you could use would be uh, Savior. 
He became her savior. Not like Adderall will take away my sins, but I mean, I need a functional savior to make life doable. I need something to give me hope. I need something to make it worth the pain and the hassle of just living in this world and having to do what I have to do. But I want to fill the blank in with another biblical term. Adderall became her hope. And the way that we tend to use the word hope and the way the Bible uses the word hope are not the same. The way we tend to use the word hope is sort of like, boy, that'd be great if such and such happens. Who knows, but that would be great. Like, wow, I hope Memorial Day is sunnier than it is right now. That's fine, but we don't know. The way the Bible uses the word hope is like this. There are these certainties that God has locked in. They're not uh, likely. They're locked in. They're unchangeable facts. Some of them have not yet been encountered, but they're there. And so you live your life in the light that that is true. Kind of in the same way, if you knew in three years you were going to inherit $10 million, how that would affect your actions right now. Biblically speaking, we could say, I hope to pay for everything I need. Yeah, I know I can because I'm about to get $10 million. So I live in the light of that. Man, we all have hopes. And I mean like hopes, like we have functional saviors. We have things that we say, that's the thing that's going to make life doable. Like for instance, I'll, I'll tell you one, and I've been thinking about this with some friends recently. I'm going to take some time off in June. And I've actually told my community group this. I think somewhere along the lines that vacation went from being like a good thing in my insides to almost like a, like a hope. I mean, I, the, the, have you ever felt this? I, mean, I might be asking you at the perfect time about this, at the end of May, which, I, you know, years ago I renamed Kill Parents Month. You can almost hear vacation saying, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, not like your job. It's like a savior. It's, it's, like a, it's like a hope. Work can be your hope. I will provide enough. I will be competent enough. I will be respected enough. I will do something enriching enough. I will have a sense of purpose enough that life is worth living. That's when work has gone from a good thing to being your hope. A functional savior. And there, it's just, there's just like limitless ways to do this wrong and we all do it. And the reason this passage, one reason why it's, it's so beautiful is it, we need people to set good role models for us. Paul is modeling to us real hope. And, and I, this is an opportunity for me to say this, and I need to say this from time to time. The takeaway that I want anytime we look at somebody in the Bible is not be like Paul. If Paul stood up here, he would say, don't be like Paul, at least in all of my life. Imitate certain things. But the takeaway is not be like Paul. The takeaway is God showed great mercy to Paul so that he had a hope that was even hope when he's under house arrest, chained, not able to go where he wants to in the most important city in the world. He's modeling something to us about the gospel. 
So let's look at this. And I really just, I want to use two templates. One you've already heard is hope, specifically the hope of Israel. The gospel is the hope of Israel. And secondly, it's the kingdom of God. The hope of Israel and the good news of the kingdom of God. All right, first off, the hope of Israel. If you've been with us reading Acts, studying Acts, Paul has a strategy when he comes into a big city. What does he do? When Paul gets into a big city, does he go on the corner with a sign and say, Repent, the end is near? When he goes into a city, the first place he goes is the synagogue to talk to people who already know about the law and the prophets and say, Let me tell you about the man who fulfills those scriptures. Well, he gets to Rome and he's under house arrest. Now, all through the first sermon, I kept doing this about being under house arrest. Check, because like I'm a righty, so I'm just picturing that Paul is a righty and he's chained with his left hand. I don't know if he was a lefty or a righty, but because here's the Roman guard that I'm actually chained to. He alludes to it in the passage, my chains. And I can do things or write. That's going to be important in a second. Or I can talk to people. He can't go to the Jews, so he summons them to come. Verse 17, after three days of actually getting in the city of Rome, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and they gathered. What does he talk to them about? First off, he says, I don't know what you've heard about me. There have been some big showdowns between me and and, uh, Jewish groups, and some have brought very serious accusations. Some wanted to see me killed. I wanted to, it's kind of like he's saying, I want to head this off at the pass and tell you where I'm coming from and, and tell you what's happened in my life. That the charges that were laid against me do not square with our scriptures, our customs, our forefathers. He calls them brothers. He talks to them like they're kinsmen. So then what does he say? Verse, uh, verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Okay. I'm not here because I hate Judaism. I'm not here because I'm trying to go against Moses or the prophets. I am in this chain and chained to this man. It's weird to think there's a Roman guard hearing all this and watching all this. I am chained to this Roman guard because of the hope of Israel. What is the hope of Israel? Look in verse 23. Tells them why he wants to talk with them. They say, let's set a date to do it. They bring a larger group back. Verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now, this is going to be my last time to get to say this. I think I've said it every sermon. Luke wrote Acts. The gospel of Luke and Acts are like a two-volume unified work. Gospel of Luke is like volume one. Acts is like volume two. Volume 1 ends with Jesus raised from the dead, appearing to his disciples, and explaining to them how the law and the Psalms and the prophets, like what we call the Old Testament, is about him. That he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Well, it's kind of like Paul takes a page out of Jesus' book. You get to the end now of volume 2. And what's happening? You've got this uh, leadership group 
of the Roman Jewish community. And Paul talks from morning till night from the law and the prophets to say what? Our scriptures, not your scriptures. Our scriptures are about and are fulfilled by this man Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. The scriptures are about him. And by the way, this gives me an opportunity to say this from time to time. If you're new to downtown Prez, you've been coming maybe for two or three weeks, and, and maybe you felt it seems like all the sermons at the end kind of end up being about Jesus. We would say, yay, that's exactly what we want. And not because we want that to be our cool kind of branding in town or like our cool downtown Prez methodology. We're trying to take our cues from Jesus who says in multiple places, these are the scriptures that are about me. And here's what Paul is saying. My Jewish kinsmen, brothers, I'm here because of the hope of Israel, but the hope of Israel is not Jewish custom. The hope of Israel is no longer to be descended from Abraham. This is really important because most people in this room are not. The hope of Israel is not to keep Jewish food laws. The hope of Israel is not to get to the temple or to keep Jewish high festival days. But the hope of Israel is to believe in the Lion of Judah. The hope of Israel is the Messiah. And anyone who believes in him, whether they are ethnically descended from Abraham or Gentile, comes into the one true Israel. There are not multiple Israels. There is one true Israel. And this is a big deal with Paul in his letters, that people like us, whose ancestors were from Germany or the UK or Africa or Asia, we can be brought into Israel. Like, think about this. Think about something that that we do every Sunday is at the end of our service, there's a benediction. And the benediction is a blessing. And the benediction is not a blessing from the minister. It's not the pastor going, you're blessed. It's the pastor pronouncing God's blessing on his people. And about half the Sundays, the one that I'll use is the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you, give you peace. You get two of them today. Where do those words come from? I really want you to know this. Did we write those words? Those are the words that God gave to the high priest of Israel. Moses' brother Aaron was the first one. And it was only for one setting, the, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, that when this one high priest, not an average priest, the high priest... When he goes into the tabernacle, one day into the temple, behind the curtain, into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, representing not only his own sins, but the sins of all of Israel, when he comes out and he hasn't been struck dead. And they haven't been struck dead. That because atonement has been made, don't just tell people, hey, we weren't killed by God, but put put a good word on them. Bless them. The Lord bless you and keep you. And Okay, so fast forward to now, thousands of years later, and all these Gentiles will come into this room, and, so, and a Gentile non-priest will stand up and say, the Lord bless you and keep you. Why do we do that? Do you know why we do that? Because this is a gathering of Israel. 
Our great high priest Jesus has gone behind the greater veil into the heavenly inner sanctum, the throne room of God, and has represented us. So it allows little people like me to say, on God's behalf, the Lord bless you because you are Israel and you are blessed. Did you know that? That you're not pretend child of Abraham when you believe in the hope of Israel, the Jewish Messiah. You are really the child of Abraham. Now, there's a warning here. What's the warning? And just so you'll know, this is a big deal. Jesus quoted this warning. John, the gospel writer, quotes this warning. Paul says it. Says that... uh, Some kind of believed him, some didn't. They get into a disagreement, and then here's what the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, Verse 25, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, now listen, listen to the recurrence of the word hear. You will indeed hear, but never understand. Verse 27, this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. If they did, if they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, I would heal them. And then what does he say in verse 28? Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will hear or listen. In the Greek, it's the, it's the same verb. What's the warning? It's not enough to just say, okay, I'll hear you out and not stone you. It's not even enough to say, okay, I'll concede your points. But the Messiah wants us to hear him. And he ended the Sermon on the Mount by saying things like this. If you hear me and do what I say, then you'll be like a man who built his house on a rock and wind, storm, howls against it. And the house stands firm because it's built on the rock. But if you hear me and do not obey my words, you're like a man who built his house on sand. And the winds came, and the storms howled, and it annihilates the house. Now, originally in the New Testament, that warning was mostly for a Jewish audience because they were the first ones to hear the gospel. But, you know, we need to hear this warning. Sometimes uh, familiarity breeds contempt. Have, have you heard about Jesus over and over and over? Do you maybe even come from a background where you've heard a lot about Jesus? But you have not yet really built your entire identity upon him. Now, I don't mean upon church. I don't mean upon Christianity as a system. I mean really to build it on him. Because Jesus says, I want you to hear me. Has your heart become dull? And let me tell you, if, if, if you're sitting here this morning and you think, I think maybe my heart is dull, just the ability... To be that self-aware, that is God being merciful to you, saying, cry out to me. Let me give you what you need. You don't need Jesus as an aspect of your life. You need Christ to be your life. He is the hope of Israel. Uh, Oh, but... How about this? What if you have believed in him? What if you've built your life on him and now you you look around and you're disappointed? Like as you look at your life, you say, I I do believe in Jesus. I have built my life on him. 
and I don't like my I don't like my life. I don't like the church. I don't downtown prez is not what it should be. The Christian community that I know isn't what it should be. This world isn't what it should be. Now what what about what do you need to hear? I think that's the importance of ending on this note of the kingdom of God. At the very beginning of Acts, you get Luke saying that Jesus rose from the dead and he appears to all these people and he talks to them about what? Luke says he talks to all these people about the kingdom of God as he did in the gospel of Luke. Well, you get to the end of Acts, verse 23. From morning till evening he expounded to them testifying to what? The kingdom of God. Um, they part ways. He says, you won't listen, the Gentiles will. So verse 30, he lived there, the city of Rome, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, I want you to think about the optics of how Luke... This is so brilliant. How he chose to end Acts... Because what you're kind of expecting is, and he came into the presence of Nero and he proclaimed Christ. He was martyred, but all who heard him were converted. The end. And the way it ends with it, it, it ends with Paul in his house arrest place where he's staying, maybe some little equivalent of an apartment, chained to a guard. And Luke says, and the gospel spread without hindrance. Does it look like it's without hindrance? And the reason I'm raising this question is, when you talk about the kingdom of God, you're saying God is king. And specifically, when we talk about the gospel of the kingdom, we're saying Jesus is king. And then we look at our lives and we think, it doesn't look like Jesus is king. Or we look at the present state of Christians or the church and we think, "Ah, it doesn't look like Jesus is king. And you keep saying that Jesus is king. Okay, I try not to be speculative but I, I got to speculate because th- I just think this had to happen over the course of two years. All right. If Paul's a righty, he's chained to the guard, and he's talking to all these people about the kingdom of God. At some point, a Roman guard had to have said, Why do you keep telling people about a kingdom? Nero is king. 60 AD. Nero is king. Rome is the kingdom. You can't even go out because you're chained to me. Why do you keep telling people there's a kingdom? Or maybe sometimes, not maybe, sometimes Paul would write these long things. And I'm sure maybe the guard would say, what is that? It's a letter. Who are you writing to? Some Christians in Ephesus. He wrote Ephesians when he was under house arrest in Rome. That's a mighty long letter. I've got a lot to say. I have to believe that Paul almost thought something along these lines. You know what? I'm going to speak freely about the kingdom of God in front of you, but in some ways, if you really knew what I'm bringing to Rome, you would cut my throat. Because what I'm bringing is going to upend the empire. Like, let me read read you this. This is by a pastor, writer, uh, really retired now, named Eugene Peterson. And this this is, he wrote this when he was a pastor. And this is so great because pastors are insecure And we want people to like us. And we want you to see that we're important. And we want to feel important because, you know, we're sinful. 
So here's what he writes. As a pastor, I don't like being viewed as nice but insignificant. I bristle when a business executive leaves the place of worship with the comment, this was wonderful, pastor, but now we have to get back to the real world, don't we? I bristle and want to assert my importance. I want to force the recognition of the key position I hold in the economy of God and in his economy if he, if he only knew it. Get this. Then I remember that I am a subversive. My long-term effectiveness depends on my not being recognized for who I really am. If he realized that I actually believe the American way of life is doomed to destruction and that another kingdom is right now being formed in secret to take its place, he would not be pleased. If he knew what I was really doing and the difference it was making, he would fire me. Do you believe that? Fast forward to this. Fast forward to, I just watched this in between services to, to make sure I remember this correctly. Do yourself a favor and get on YouTube. Isn't that great? Come to church and I tell you to get on YouTube. How was church? He told us to get on YouTube. It was awesome. Get on YouTube. Look up uh, Scripture and Kim Y'all Tribe. K-I-M-Y-A-L. And you can watch multiple versions of a video of the translation of the Scriptures into the language of the Kim Y'all Tribe of Indonesia. And this is like, this is like what you think of when you think of missions. It's a plane coming in to an air, like a grass airstrip where the tribe is waiting to receive their own copies of the Scripture in their language. And, I mean, like, ceremonial headdresses and spears and dancing and crying. and I mean, it's awesome. But then they talk to people after they've received the Scriptures, and you get these local tribal people, and they do not look Jewish, and they do not look Roman. And you hear them in their own language, their subtitles saying... We just love teaching our children the Scripture so that they understand the love of God and the good news of Jesus Christ. And the irony is, one of the things they're teaching their children is Ephesians. Why are you writing these letters? Why do you keep telling people about this kingdom? Rome is the kingdom and Nero is the king. And about 19 and a half centuries later, Rome is gone. And here's this tribe that that man didn't even know about. And they are learning the word of God, the word of the kingdom. Why? Because we live in the already and the not yet. Is Jesus already king? Is Jesus already king? Does Jesus already have all authority in heaven and on earth? Thank you. Does it seem that way? In my life, in your life, in the church, in Greenville, in the world? No. Does it seem like Jesus is king of the Middle East? No. Is he king of the Middle East? Yes. And we live in that tension. We live with the tension of he actually is king and it doesn't look like it in my house or my insides or my body or my job or my church or the world. And I want to call you to embrace it. Why should I embrace it? Because he's going to change it. His kingdom will be fully manifested. How do you know that? How do I know that's not a fiction? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he rose from the dead. Death could not hold him. The tomb could not hold him. And that was God's billboard to say, He is actually my king 
put all your identity, all your trust, all your aspirations in Him. He has all authority. You don't see it yet, but you will. I was just thinking about all the D words that will go away when He comes back. Just that one letter. Death. Disease. Depression. Despair. Divorce. Dysfunctional families. That's just one letter. I'll end with this. The Hallelujah Chorus handles Messiah. My favorite part is when in the Hallelujah Chorus the music slows down. And I don't know if you've ever even noticed the words. It says these words in its old-fashioned English. The kingdom of this world is become... The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And I want to end this series on Acts by saying that that is actually true. Christ will never have more authority than he does right now, but one day it will be fully manifested. Turn to him. Whether it's for the first time or for the millionth time, turn to him with open hands and say, fill my hands. Make me what I'm supposed to be. Take away what I can't take away. Take away my sin. Take away my inertia to change and rule. Amen. Let's pray.